At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Women's War, a production of iHeartRadio. It's weird to wake up in the morning and read about a dictatorial warlord's promise to murder all the people you're planning to hang out with that day. I can safely call it a unique experience. We'd ended our night in Kobani with a huge dinner at a local restaurant, located right next to a soccer field. Young men and women had played while we'd all enjoyed cold beer and hot food. Kobat even had a drink. I had several. I'd taken a couple home to have before bed, and while I walked around the hotel grounds, I got a feel for Kobani at night. It was a pleasant evening, and a need to pee woke me up unusually early the next morning. Once I got back from the restroom, I made the profound error of unlocking my phone and checking the news. Sweet Lady Internet informed me that Turkish President Erdogan had made a whole new spate of threats against Rojava and the Syrian Democratic Forces. The United States was still ostensibly trying to mediate in the dispute between their largely Kurdish allies and the Turkish government. But everyone in the region knew the United States planned to leave, which made their actual negotiating position with Turkey practically nil. The cities we'd been traveling through, bright, defiant Kobani, peaceful Derik, chaotic Kamishlo, Erdogan called them all a terror corridor. In meetings with his own party, he promised to shatter this corridor, no matter how the negotiations with the U.S. to establish a safe zone along the Syrian borders concludes. His reasons for this go back decades, and they're tied up heavily in the deeply complicated history of Turkish domination over the Anatolian Peninsula. But the most recent justification for violence was, in fairness, pretty straightforward. PKK militants in Iraq had absolutely assassinated a Turkish diplomat just the day before Jake and I had landed in Erbil. Erdogan's contention was that all of Rojava was nothing but one big giant safe space for a terrorist group to operate in. The debate over the PKK's role in Rojava is yet another super fucking complicated issue. The people who actually live here talk readily about who is from the mountains in the PKK and who is not. We'd actually talked about this a bit the day before with Chabad. She'd acknowledged that these old fighters were often more experienced organizers than local Syrian Kurds. Two more professional. Yeah. 
yeah. or more experience than the local or whatever. Or sometimes you find these mamas, they are also super professional in their work. So each one is different. I remember there was a one of them in the mountains. She organized all that women, that mamas that we met. And now she moved and now they are organizing themselves by themselves. So it's good that in the beginning they organized. It would be rank idiocy to deny the influence the PKK wields in Rojava. But it would be just as foolish to act as if everything that happens here is part of some gigantic terrorist conspiracy to destroy Turkish sovereignty. The mamas are not militants. Haval Salam and Ahim, who we met at the farm, did not have secret designs to assault Turkish military bases. Jinwar was not a cover for any sort of militant action. There are very few simple truths in this place, but as best as I can ascertain, two things are true. Number one, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, has been responsible for horrific acts of violence in the past and is still responsible for violence in the present day. And number two, the PKK also saved tens of thousands of Yazidi lives during the early days of the war against ISIS. The early YPG was heavily dominated by PKK fighters, and the men and women who invaded Iraq to stop ISIS from massacring the Yazidis were basically all PKK. If you don't know this history, it's easy to look at the PKK's assassination of a Turkish diplomat and write them off as just another extremist group. But you really can't. Averting a genocide may not wipe the slate clean, but it damn sure earns something in my book. And it's also worth noting that, outraged as Turkey was over the attack in Erbil, the Turkish government gives zero fucks about violating another nation's sovereignty to murder a political enemy. Sakina Jansis was one of the founding members of the PKK, right alongside Abdullah Ajalan. She wasn't fast or lucky enough to escape to Syria when the government cracked down on them, and in September of 1980, she wound up imprisoned in Diyarbakir. Some 34 of her fellow inmates were tortured to death during the years she was locked up. Seeing her friends get tortured to death was a profoundly radicalizing experience for Sakina, and for many of her comrades. This helped push the PKK to acts of more extreme violence in the 1980s. While she was locked up, Jansis led a series of inmate protests inside the prison. Her composure and toughness made her a natural rallying point for the imprisoned insurgents, and by the time she was released, Sakina Jansis was seen as a legend within the PKK. She escaped to Syria after being freed, received armed training, and became one of the movement's first female fighters. Sakina's first combat experience was against Saddam Hussein's Iraqi army, who were then in the process of committing genocide via chemical weapons. She was good at fighting, and she pushed hard for more women to join the PKK as fighters. Since Jansas was close to Abdullah Ajalan, she was able to play a major role in getting the guerrilla leader to embrace the concept of armed all-women units. By 1993, one-third of the PKK's fighters were female. It's probably fair to say that Sakina Jansas was as much a founder of the Rojavan Revolution as Abdullah Ajalan. Her decades of advocacy and personal lobbying certainly had a profound impact on Apo and his eventual conversion into an obsessive advocate for gender equality. In 1999, under interrogation after his arrest, Apo said this, I started the women's movement to free women from the feudalism of men and to create a strong type of women. I wanted lively discussions. In relation to that, I do remember the name of Sakina Jansas. For her part, Sakina wound up dispatched to Europe to work on the political side of the PKK's operations, lobbying the European Union for Kurdish sovereignty. She spent nearly 20 years in France and was a prominent face for the movement until January 9, 2013, when she and two other Kurdish activists were gunned down by a Turkish maintenance worker with strong ties to Turkey's equivalent of the CIA. 
All of this was on my mind in the morning of July 25th as I tore myself away from my smartphone, showered, and stumbled out into the breaking dawn with a goal of finding a cup of coffee. Instead, I found Chabad sitting out in front of the hotel and smoking a cigarette with an old man who identified himself as Papa Kurdi. He invited me to sit, smoke, and talk, and so we did. We talked a bit about the fighting against ISIS and the coming war against Turkey until Jake and Alan got up to join us. Then we all piled into the car and headed off. We rolled through downtown Kobani on our way out of town, and it gave me my first real look at the center of the city. Everything is very clean and very new. We approach a traffic circle in the exact middle of the city, and my eyes are drawn to what is easily the largest television screen I saw in Rojava. It's mounted to a monument in the circle, and it displays a 24-7 feed of drone footage of the city right after the Battle of Kobani ended. The footage shows us this same traffic circle as it was just a few years earlier, blasted and ruined. Our first stop today is a press office for the SDF, located just outside of Kobani. We need to secure permission to visit a nearby base for the YPJ, Rojava's all-female militia. This particular base is the first all-Arab training center for the YPJ, which up until the last year or so had been overwhelmingly Kurdish-dominated. No journalists had ever been allowed inside this training center before. As Alan barrels down the highway this morning, we've already been turned down more than once. But Chabat is absolutely committed to turning this no into a yes. So we park outside, walk in, and start what became a three-hour back-and-forth between Chabat and a rotating series of SDF officials. We are waiting for the people in the academy that support some of them approach on the way to here. So we're going to either discuss with them or we're going to see how, if they're going to allow us. They said no media have been in the academy yet. Okay. Never. So this is the new thing we are asking. So, Let's While Jake and I sipped coffee and smoked Alan's horrid cigarettes, Chabat worked. It was a long, grinding, and interminable process. But these kind of days are also an unavoidable reality of conflict journalism. As with soldiers, much of a journalist's time in these places is spent hurrying up for the opportunity to wait. By the third hour, Jake and I start to suspect that this whole thing might not actually work out. Chabat received no after no from different officials. The whole morning, she darted from person to person, one hand always on her phone as she gently plied each of her contacts within the SDF. It was a painfully slow process, but she did eventually get our yes. We piled immediately into Alan's van, terrified that someone might change their mind if we were to linger too long. Once we actually got on the road, we shared a moment of gleeful celebration, made all the sweeter by the agony of the wait. Alan produced a pair of cigarettes for Jake and I. Spasbash! He grunted at us with a wiggly smile. Then he turned his eyes back to the road and put pedal to the metal. We'd already burned through a lot of the day getting the yes. Now it was time to make it count. The YPJ base is a massive compound in the desert, surrounded by low, cream-colored walls and the yellow, rolling plains of northeast Syria. There is fire in the air and dust all around us as we drive up to the entrance, which is lined with dozens of flags and icons from all the different units in the SDF. Behind these flags are rows of baby trees, saplings, clearly planted recently when this base was constructed. It's anyone's guess where Rojava will be by the time they grow to adulthood. We pass through a gatehouse, and then Alan grumbles his van to a slow stop in the middle of a complex of large, low buildings that look like the facilities for a rather humble state university. We see a few young women sitting out around the steps of a nearby building, huddled around a couple of books and studying. If they weren't all wearing military fatigues, this might look like some progressive women's college in the desert. That impression fades when we meet our host, Nuraz Raka, the commander of this training facility. 
Like most of the women we'll meet today, she has adopted a nom de guerre. The standard is to take the name of the city of your birth, in her case, Raqqa. She looks to be in her mid-twenties, although her face seems much older. She keeps her jaw clenched tight, and my lasting impression of her face is all stern lines and sharp angles. Haval Raqqa presents a powerful air of severity to the world. This is reinforced by the patch on her shoulder, which bears a picture of Abdullah Ajalan and the words, No life without our leader. For all that, though, she is quiet and polite as she welcomes us into this training facility, which is also her home. We carry our gear into a large meeting room in the compound's main building. The meeting room is rectangular, about the size of a large trailer. The walls are all lined with ground-level couches, essentially just a network of thick cushions that provide comfy, low-slung seating around the walls of the facility. There is no oppo picture on the wall, but there is a flat-screen TV, which is playing coverage from one of Rojava's local TV news networks. The day's big story is about the peace talks between Turkey, the U.S., and Rojava's self-administration. We settle in, exchange some pleasantries, and then Chabat and I slip rather casually into an interview with Haval Raka. She refers to this training facility as an academy, and through Chabat, tells us why it was opened in the first place. Academy relevant to the SDF. Why they opened this academy? Because there was a necessity for the Arab uh, sects in order to, because they don't understand the Kurdish language, they opened this academy, it's in Arabic, and usually they receive... uh, uh, The whole training course is two months, and a full month of it is ideological training, starting with a class in the history of Syria, and then an introduction to democracy, with women's rights as the core of that philosophy. Core education, which is the uh, feminist movements, and uh, specifically the characters who are very famous, like Adira Gandhi, Zanubia, and the other women who are the statue. They make a stand in the revolution history, struggler women. This education into the history of feminist movements eventually dovetails into a history of the YPJ. The goal is for women here to feel as if they are part of a struggle that's bigger than Syria and older than just the ideals of Rojava. So they are giving share, including this whole movement in around the world globally. Who are those women? Why they are fighting? Who they were fighting? Why this revolution take a place? So all this they are explaining during this feminist movement. Uh, Haval Raka explains that her goal is not just to train these women to fight, but to train them to be leaders in their community. Group. They are preparing those people for uh, leading in as as a leaders, as as uh, you know, uh, commanders uh, to lead the community, the society to be uh, knowing themselves. This is what they are trying to building here and. Uh, yeah, they are receiving people from different parts of Syria. Even last time, there was a last, before they graduated the last uh, group, uh, there was a Turkmen in this group, and usually it's anyone speaking. For most of its history, the Rojavan movement has been heavily Kurdish-dominated. Critics of Rojava regularly make the case that it is really a Kurdish supremacist movement. But Arabs, Armenians, Turkmen, and members of other ethnic groups make up an increasingly large percentage of the soldiers in the SDF. So they are teaching them the, about the uh, democratic nation because for them the, the, the core of democratic nation philosophy is uh, the woman, free woman. So without the free woman, they, no one will, uh, could be able to implement. Up to this point, what she's saying is what we've heard before, but it quickly becomes clear that she's actually trying to make a more nuanced point. This project and who will going to implement this project is those people who are teaching them about the democratic nation because... That was probably unclear to a lot of people. What Haval Raka is saying through Chabad is that in addition to fighting, the women who train here are expected to go back to their communities and help spread democratic values among them. This is the long game for Rojava, and it's the only real long game that the Kurdish founders of this movement could hope to have.
The SDF has made education and history, politics, and ethics as much of a priority as armed training because they consider spreading this education to be something that contributes to their immediate physical security. It's a democratic nation and all the other wars here, it's a sectarian war. So they want a democratic nation which is diversity and include all the nationalists. We in the United States are currently receiving a crash course on what happens when a society loses any kind of shared conception of history and ethics. At its very worst, this sort of collapse and shared understanding can lead to civil wars and ethnic cleansing. Kurds in this part of Syria are no stranger to ethnic cleansing. They have been victims and also perpetrators. Kurdish fighters were active participants in the Armenian Genocide of 1915 to 1917. The Armenian Genocide is too complex a topic to cover in detail now, but it's worth noting that Turkey denies it ever happened. Overwhelming evidence proves that somewhere between 1 and 2 million people were killed on the orders of the Ottoman Turkish government. Many nations around the world have officially recognized the Armenian Genocide. The United States is not one of them. Before he took office, Barack Obama promised to change this fact. He did not keep that promise. Top Obama advisors Ben Rhodes and Samantha Power have recently acknowledged that they view this as a mistake. Rhodes explained to Politico, Every year there was a reason not to. Turkey was vital to some issue that we were dealing with, or there was some dialogue between Turkey and the Armenian government about the past. The main reason Turkey was too vital to offend is the massive airbase the United States maintains in the Turkish city of Inserlik. The fact that this airbase includes 50 nuclear warheads complicates matters further. But the issue of the Armenian Genocide is not complicated in Rojava. Abdullah Ajalan began writing about the need for Kurds to atone for their role in the Armenian Genocide in the late 1980s. In 2019, on the International Day of Armenian Genocide Commemoration, the SDF announced the creation of its first all-Armenian military brigade. The men and women of the YPG and YPJ learn about the Armenian Genocide as part of their training. One way or the other, the goal of all this is to promote self-defense. One of the basic lessons that we are giving is uh, uh, self-defense, self-defense culture. We wanted to build in this character of those fighters that self-defense, it's a your right. It's a legal right for any human beings to have it. Unfortunately, in this region, there have been a lot of uh, different um, armed actors and they have been different behaviors against the other different human beings. We wanted to build them just self-defense where we don't want any as a military forces, you know, to control them, to control their character. That's not to killing randomly or whatever. So, yeah, we want to, because uh, we wanted to implement the line, uh, the philosophy lines of Ojalan, that's it's about the, the freedom of the woman, and uh, we wanted this self-defense with the freedom, and in the character, representing of the character of the freedom of the woman to be uh, uh, represented in a right way. It's not lost on me that one group's ideological education is another group's brainwashing. The Turkish government's contention would certainly be that the girls and women of this base are all being brainwashed to serve a terrorist group no better than Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Fortunately, this was an area in which I was able to do some more investigation. I could see that Haval Raka had a notebook full of instructional materials for the day's courses. I asked if we could see it. She handed the notebook over and let me take photos of the training material. I did not have time to gather a comprehensive collection of every lesson, but I walked away with the class syllabus and the full text of a one-course unit. The syllabus was for the first 30 days of the two-month training, and it lined up with what Haval Raka had claimed during our interview. The first few days focused on rules for behavior and procedures in the YPJ and SDF, basic order and military discipline. Day six starts with courses on criticism and self-criticism, the tech mill system we talked about earlier, and physical and moral values. Much of the course centers around reading the works of Abdullah Ajalan. 
His booklet, The Democratic Nation, is studied on day 14. Liberating Life, another booklet, is on day 16. Women and the Family is on day 18. All of these books are available in full for free on the website ajalonbooks.com. O-C-A-L-A-N-B-O-O-K-S dot com. You can read them yourself if you want a deeper understanding of the course material. For our purposes in this podcast, I'm just going to read some selections I found interesting from Liberating Life. The history of the loss of freedom is at the same time the history of how woman lost her position and vanished from history. It is the history of how the dominant male, with all his gods and servants, rulers and subordinates, his economy, science and arts, obtained power. Woman's downfall and loss is thus the downfall and loss of the whole of society, with the resultant sexist society. The sexist male is so keen on constructing his social dominance over women that he turns any contact with her into a show of dominance. The depth of a woman's enslavement and the intentional masking of this fact is thus closely linked to the rise within a society of hierarchical and statist power. As women are habituated to slavery, hierarchies, from the Greek word hierarchia, ruled by the high priest, are established. The path to the enslavement of the other sections of society is paved. The enslavement of men comes after the enslavement of women. And another quote, Housewifeization is the oldest form of slavery. The strong man and his entourage defeated the mother woman in all aspects of her cult through long and comprehensive struggles. Housewifeization became institutionalized when the sexist society became dominant. Originally, the term hierarchy referred to the government by the priests, the authority of the wise elders. Initially, it had a positive function. We may perhaps even view the beneficial hierarchy in a natural society as the prototype of democracy. The mother woman and the wise elders ensured communal security and the governance of the society. They were necessary and useful fundamental elements in a society that was not based on accumulation and ownership. Society voluntarily awarded them respect. But when voluntary dependence is transformed into authority, usefulness into self-interest, it always gives way to an uncalled-for instrument of force. The instrument of force disguises itself behind common security and collective production. This constitutes the core of all exploitative and oppressive systems. It is the most sinister creation ever invented, the creation that brought forth all forms of slavery, all forms of mythology and religion, all systematic annihilation and plunder. The emotional intelligence of woman that created wonders, that was humane and committed to nature and life, was lost. In its place has been born the cursed analytical intelligence of a cruel culture that has surrendered itself to dogmatism and detached itself from nature, that considers war to be the most exalted virtue and enjoys the shedding of human blood, that sees his arbitrary treatment of women and his enslavement of man as its right. I want to remind everyone again that these words I just read are part of the mandatory training program for a militia in the Syrian desert. I'll read one more quote before we move on. The male has become a state and turned this into the dominant culture. Class and sexual aggression develop together. Masculinity has generated ruling gender, ruling class, and ruling state. When man is analyzed in this context, it is clear that masculinity must be killed. Indeed, to kill the dominant man is the fundamental principle of socialism. This is what killing power means, to kill the one-sided domination, the inequality and intolerance. Moreover, it is to kill fascism, dictatorship, and despotism. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After concluding our interview with Haval Raka and taking photos of the course materials, we break for coffee and a smoke. While we're resting, a young woman wearing fatigues, a bright flower keffia, and Hello Kitty socks gently steps into the room. She looks to be in her mid-twenties, with straight black hair, a handsome, angular face, and large, intelligent brown eyes. She introduces herself as a friend Masso. She tells us that she is the YPJ's media representative at this base. Shortly after arriving, we told Haval Raka that we wanted to interview some of the soldiers here about their lives. Havala Freen tells us that her job is to sit in during the interview and make sure we're respectful of her soldiers. Many of these women are just 17 or 18 years old, and a number of them have traumatic histories that led them here. She wants to make sure we don't press our subjects to talk about things they aren't comfortable sharing. This concerns me a bit. 
The request is not inherently unreasonable, but it's only proper journalistic skepticism to worry that a media representative sitting in on an interview might be there to control or restrict the answers given by a subject. I decide to keep an eye on Havala Freen during the interview. We step away and set up for our first interview in a small side room. All of the women we talked to today have volunteered to speak. The first is Haval Kurdistan, a square-jawed woman with Coke bottle glasses who gives me very strong librarian vibes. So she, her name is uh, Kurdistan Bara. She's from Malbij originally. She came uh, for uh, ideological training. She is a member of the uh, MMS. The MMS, or Manbij Military Council, is one of the many militias that works under the broad umbrella of the SDF. Haval Kurdistan joined back in 2016, and during that bloody period of the war, there was not much time for ideological training. Now that things have calmed down, the SDF sent her here to finish learning. She reached adulthood in one of the most traumatic and trying circumstances imaginable. Haval Kurdistan's adolescence coincided disastrously with the meteoric rise and expansion of the Islamic State. The soldiers of the caliphate conquered her home, and she was forced to live under their brutal rule for years of her life. She suffered during ISIS uh, when it was controlling uh, Manbij. What happened, she was once in the market, and she has argued with the one of the ISIS members, fighters. So uh, they took her to a jail, and she stayed in the jail for 15 days, and they supposed to kill her. So anyhow, she survived. She managed to get out and be released, and uh, she was waiting when the SDF came. She joined directly. It was obvious that Haval Kurdistan had more to say about her time in ISIS jail, but for the moment, I moved forward with questions. I wanted to know how all of the radical political ideas of Abdullah Ajalan had sat with a young woman just freed from ISIS captivity. Somehow this uh, education, it was sometimes making like a comparison for me about my ex-life in slavery life, she said, mm-hmm. and my new one, it's, you know, I was like questioning all my ex-life. Oh, yeah, her past so life. As we moved on, she told us about her first time shooting a rifle. She found it fun and wanted to keep shooting after they ran out of bullets. She also told us about her first time in combat during the grinding battle to retake Raqqa from ISIS. So somehow, you know, like our enemy, it wasn't uh, easy enemy, it was ISIS. So uh, the first time when I went there, I have a fear. I have, I was all somehow afraid. I was like, you know, it's a new for me to, to be there. Uh, but at the same time, I was uh, like super concentrating and, uh, you know, uh, take care to do all the things. When she mentions the importance of paying attention, she's referring to the fact that every ISIS battlefield is absolutely filthy with unexploded ordnance. This is something I experienced myself during the siege of Mosul, stepping through neighborhoods that had been liberated by ISIS minutes earlier. Not only were the streets filled with duds, unexploded bombs from coalition aircraft, and artillery from the Iraqi army, but the whole fucking place was booby-trapped to hell and back. Veteran soldiers would point out specific wires, looped across doorways and the entrances to alleys. They'd take me around and show where those wires connected to piles of high explosives. They'd also point out numerous abandoned vehicle-based IEDs and suicide vests, littering the ground like stray condoms on the San Francisco sidewalk. Can I, can I just ask a question? Um, so before you said you wanted to join YPJ and fight to get revenge for what happened when you were living under ISIS and for all the women, then you went to their capital, you went to Raqqa and chased them out. Do you feel like you know, you've got that revenge mm-hmm. now? No, not yet. I mean, uh, she said, like, I, as I said, like, when I'm free myself, if uh, all the women are not free, I'm not, uh, we take, didn't take our revenge, and we will gonna, if we didn't completely uh, defeated ISIS uh, from the roots, uh, we still are working on that. We didn't get our revenge yet. Jake pressed a little further, asking how Haval Kurdistan believed she could get revenge for the crimes ISIS committed against her and the other innocent people of northeast Syria. Struggling resistance. 
we have a, a determination. This is the only way to do it. The conversation moves on, and eventually we wind up on the subject of male supremacy and the niqab, the full head covering garment ISIS made mandatory for all women. How does she feel when she sees that we were in Raqqa yesterday and there were more women than I've seen anywhere else in Rojava wearing niqab? Mm. Um, how does she feel when she sees that? Does she feel like sort of that, those attitudes of male supremacy that are still very deeply ingrained um, are kind of the roots of ISIS? Mm. I feel so pity for them when I saw them. I feel like uh, uh, for that we have to resist them in order to uh, free all those women. This because this closet, this thing is represented ISIS roots. It's representing ISIS mentality, which is enslaving the women. Uh, because of that, we wanted to change. We wanted to 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 you know change. All Next, I ask her how she thinks the men she has served with, particularly the older men, have adapted to serving alongside women. Both Haval Kurdistan and Haval Afrin, the YPJ media liaison, burst out laughing. At that point, Haval Afrin speaks up. While I wait for Kabat's translation, I wonder if she might try to walk back the claims of lingering bias among male soldiers in the SDF. <laughs> those for those older men, it's, the struggle those for those, it's, it's higher than the others, you know? The older so men, she, she said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the idea, she said, like, uh, uh, yeah, uh, we cannot change everything in the day and night. The sure. history of the oppressed of the women, it's a long history, 5,000 years ago. So this uh, mentality have been, uh, you know, take a place in the community for the women, men, everyone, like, still believing in that. So to change that, it's another day and night. It's going to take even one... She's saying training there, and she's referring to the month of requirement ideological training. Havala Frin admitted freely that the trainers at this academy were taking on an almost insurmountable task, fighting against generations of entrenched misogyny. It's like I need a lot of time to be changed. So even now we are with our colleagues, the men colleagues in a different... Um, she said colleagues there. We are, they are our friends, they are, uh, we are our comrades, they are, uh, we are fighting together, we are taking training, we are uh, have a living together, but at the end we have our struggle, we have our struggle as a woman, because if we, do, we will not going to be free ourselves and uh, explain to them how it's important uh, to understand that for them also, uh, we cannot get our uh, results from our struggle. As much as we have a man in this mentality, we have to keep struggling, because um, in order to get this level of equality, gender equality between us and, and, and they understand how, how we, we have to share everything together, it's need time and we are like doing that day by day. I said like uh, she, uh, he's asking specifically about this uh, uh, elderly men or the, the men who are a little bit yeah, older yeah. than the others, it's more difficult she said, for sure. Yeah. Our struggle because they are, uh, they have this uh, uh, patriarchy mentality, uh, you know, more in their character than the others. So we can't change it faster. So the dose for those men, it's uh, higher a struggle. It's certainly fair to say that Havala Freen was not shy of admitting to shortcomings and imperfections within the SDF. I grew less worried that she was sitting in on the interview in order to somehow restrict the information I receive. Her true purpose for being in the room became clearer when Jake asked his next question. I'm, I'm curious about two things, um, and as well, say to her if it's too traumatic, she don't feel obliged to answer. But I want to know why, what the argument was in the market with the ISIS guy, and yeah. what it was like inside the jails there. Kabat translates the question, and we see the reaction in Haval Kurdistan's face before she begins her response. She maintains her composure, but the story that follows is clearly not easy for her to tell. 
Havalafrin puts a hand on her comrade's knee and looks her in the eyes. She seems at once to be telling Haval Kurdistan, you can do this, and you don't have to do it if it's too hard. So the problems or the argument started because she was uh, fully wearing this niqab and bila and everything, but there is a belt. Chabat said belt there. The man who stopped of all Kurdistan was a member of the Hizbah, ISIS's religious police. She'd been out shopping with her siblings, but was forced to send them home and head to jail. Haval Kurdistan continued to tell her story, and of course neither Jake or I could understand what she was saying, but we saw very clearly the shock on Chabat's face as the story went on. So, yeah, uh, they took her to the center. They steal all her gold, money, all the properties that was with her, everything was with him. And also they put her na- family's name on a list that's, you know, always they were going to double checking on them or whatever. And uh, they first uh, wanted to kill her, uh, you know, executing her. Then they changed it to 1,500 lashes. Yes, lashes, as in whipping someone in the back with a long leather bullwhip. I'm sure you're wondering right now, how many lashes does it take to kill a person? Can a human being survive 1,500 of them? And the answer is that not all lashes are created equal. In 1846, a young British soldier died in London after receiving just 150 lashes. In 2004, a 14-year-old Iranian boy was given 85 lashes and died, but that was due to the whipper accidentally hitting him in the head. In 2008, Saudi Arabia sentenced a doctor to 1,500 lashes for prescribing a princess medication that led her to a drug addiction. The doctor survived, but he also received only 50 lashes per week until his sentence was fulfilled. There are cases of human beings surviving more than 1,500 lashes in a single terrible beating. And so Haval Kurdistan's punishment was not necessarily a death sentence. Receiving that many lashes will, however, completely shred the outer layer of skin on your back, down to the bone. I have read accounts of modern people who received 50 to 100 lashes. They describe the pain as incomprehensible. And these lashes, it was by three persons. Because if one of them get tired, he will not get it strong, you know, enough. So they change it. Try to hold that in your head. Three strong men wore themselves out, beating this woman's back into bloody ribbons. 1,500 lashes. Three persons change it, each one of them 500, to keep strong as much as they can. They still didn't break her. She means that Haval Kurdistan's desire to be free, to escape ISIS, is what kept her alive through the beating. For a few seconds, Jake and I just sat in silence, processing the story we'd heard. To recover from that kind of injury, Mm. to be able to, like, go into the world again, like, that's a serious injury. But she did recover, and once she did, she used the same determination that had seen her through the beating to effect her escape from ISIS-controlled territory. Once she was free, she joined the SDF. If she had a weapon, training, and comrades with the same, no man would ever whip her again. We take a break after that, and then sit down to interview another young fighter. As before, Havala Friend sits in on the interview. Our next subject is younger than Haval Kurdistan, and gives her age as 19. 
She wears camo fatigues with curly hair that is slicked back on top. She tells us she spent four to five years of her life under Dash control and gives her name as... Because I am not great at reading Arabic, for the rest of this episode, I will refer to her as Haval Revenge. Revenge, friend. You have to admit it's a pretty badass nickname. I ask her what specific moments come to mind when she thinks about revenge. Her brother joined, have been recruited with the ISIS, so she wanted to uh, uh, take revenge of those ISIS members who are, uh, who are recruiting all the, the, the other youths in order to, uh, using them as a tool against, or in, a, in a very dehumanizing way against the other uh, population, and what they, how, how they destroyed our country, so I wanted to take revenge of all that. I asked her how her brother explained his decision to join ISIS at the time. So my brother, he has already like this religious background and friend. Uh, he was uh, always like uh, um, reading Quran in, in different mosques for the others look like. Uh, so once he disappeared for a forty-five days and he completely disappeared, and when he returned back, we know that he's uh, have been recruited with us because my cousin, he is a Amir in, in Daesh, and he recruited my brother. An Amir is a leader within the Islamic State. Haval Revenge lived under ISIS for almost five years, basically the entirety of her adolescence. She only escaped because the SDF eventually liberated her hometown. I ask her, what was the very first thing you did once you realized you were free? So the first thing I did was I removed the black uh, veils. Chabat said veil there, in case it was unclear. And I burned it uh, because ISIS it so obliged us to wear that clothes, which is uh, uh, completely dehumanizing against us and, uh, and looking to us even not as a human being. I ask her next if she can remember the very first time she saw a woman carrying a gun. Her voice almost breaks as she answers. So I was approaching to Al-Hasak in order to, uh, uh, my de- to the dentist, and uh, I saw a woman walking with a weapon, and I was looking to her and make a comparison how ISIS to which level they put us and how she is there. And, uh, I wish In short, she first saw a woman of the YPJ after escaping ISIS control. The sight of a free woman with a rifle was shocking, mind-blowing after so many years under ISIS control. She decided to join. I asked her how it felt the first time she held a gun of her own. My dream it was to join the uh, YPJ and I was like always, I feel like it's an illusion or imaginary, never was going to happen. So whenever I was just joined and I hold the weapon, it was for me like a hope for myself. It was like already I have a, a, this dare and a courage in order to do it. I hold this hope for my future and to, for myself. You know, it was like physical thing. So I was ready for that. I was only dreaming about it. Uh, you know, I have been oppressed for years, so I dreamed about this. Next, I ask, what would she do if a man ever tried to make her put on a niqab again? We conclude our interview with Haval Revenge. Haval Afrin gives her friend a cheerful poke on the cheek. I find the gesture striking, and I tell her so. Uh, can you tell Haval Afrin that uh, her pride in her friends is written all over her face when they talk? Her pride. As a woman, she, she, as a woman, they struggled and they, they get the achievements and they are here. I, I, I cannot hide my respect and, and I'm proud of them. 
Havala Freen had initially not been willing to give an interview herself, but I've grown increasingly interested in her throughout these interviews. I started this process suspicious of her, but her relentless positivity and supportiveness towards her comrades had thoroughly won me over. I ask again if she might want to talk, and this time she says yes. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Afreen Maso. I joined the YPJ in 2014. Myself, I'm from Afreen. My family's origins had a lot to do with me joining. My family loves their homeland. This had a big effect on me. In 2013, when my brother was martyred by ISIS, it had an even bigger effect on me. I was thinking about it for a year. 
Joining the military is not an easy thing. For a year, until 2014, throughout all of 2013, I was thinking about it. Will I go? Could I do it? I dwelled on it a lot, because as a civilian person, your life will pass into a new life. That is, you take on a new life through your own choice. This created a big contradiction in me. I go, I don't go, I go. What happens? In 2014, I joined. Like everyone else, Havala Freen is shoeless while inside. Her socks have bright English words written across them. Never give up. When I joined, of course I was scared at first. I told myself I wouldn't tell my family. No matter how much a family loves their homeland, they love their child even more. And so when I joined, I didn't tell my family. I said I was just going to school and that I'd be back soon. When I'd arrived to the Havals, they passed the information to my family that I had joined the YPJ. At that time, my father came to me. I'll never forget what he said. He told me, this is your spirit then. You have chosen the way that's before you. Who am I to keep you from this? But know also that if you betray this movement and come back home, I will throw you out of the house. But she made it through her training, and she joined the YPJ's media center, essentially acting as a reporter, or a PR agent, for the militia. After receiving the basic YPJ training, I joined the media center. The first time I went to the front, I didn't go as a fighter. The first combat I ever saw was in Tel Rafat. Perhaps you've heard of it, it's towards Shabbat. When you, as a woman, have just joined the military, you wish to fight and experience war. Though we as women are completely against war, when you see your society and your people under authoritarianism, you are forced to defend your own society. That time I didn't fire my gun because my comrades didn't allow me, they said, you are part of the media team. They protected me from threats. I had my weapon as well as my camera, but recording was my goal. In the fight, I can play a role as part of the media team. My goal was to communicate to the public the reality of the war. Havala Frein did not consider the defeat of ISIS to be the end of the YPJ's struggle. She comes from, no surprise, the city of Afrin, which is currently occupied by Turkish-backed Islamist militias. There is a pain inside me. The occupation of Afrin has increased my thirst for revenge. Every piece of news from, these people have been kidnapped, to, those historical landmarks have been destroyed. Every news story like this increases my pain. This pain also pushes me to take revenge. But the liberation of Afrin and the victory in the war against Turkey was not nearly the end of her ambitions. Like Horiam Shamid, the head of the Women's Economic Development Center we interviewed back at the beginning of our journey, Afrin Maso is a true believer. Now, the goal of every fighter in YPJ is to liberate her mind. Because yes, it's true, we have joined the YPJ and thus we liberate our bodies. But this is not enough. We also have to liberate ourselves from the capitalist system. Throughout history, the first city-states were built on the basis of exploiting the woman. If we go back to history, we see that it was the women who created everything. In natural societies, before the rise of city-states, women were leaders. But after the system of city-states was built up by men, they began oppressing women for the first time in history. Throughout the last 4,000 years, a system has been built up over the woman. It doesn't allow her to work, to go outside, to take up the gun. Even in her own home, she is not allowed to express her opinion. Even when you get married and should live a shared life, you cannot express your own opinion. You aren't free to say what you want. 
our goal is to bring an end to this mentality. We don't say that women should take a higher position than men. Our goal is equality between women and men, to make it possible that our society can live with a free mentality. Neither women nor men should be the oppressor. There should be equality. I have many, many more questions, and I wish I could have stayed there for hours asking them. But this is a military trading academy, and our interviews have come up against one of their daily training exercises, a long march in full gear with rifles. Jake, Chabot, and I are invited along, and so we lace up our boots and head into the scorching heat of the Rojavan afternoon. The training platoon has already marched off, so we hop into Alon's van to catch up with them. We're hopping out. We're about to be on patrol with the YPJ training unit, which is about, let's see here, 20, about 24 young women nearly all of whom are carrying Kalashnikovs, wearing fatigues, and heads wrapped against the desert heat, some wearing hats, some wearing kefias. It's an interesting mix of colors from the, uh, the BDU camouflage, which could come straight out of the U.S. military, to the colorful, beautiful headscarves, some of them with floral prints and little silver dangly bits on the end. Some women choosing to walk with their heads completely uncovered, others in ball caps. Most of them are clearly very new to holding a gun. Others, like Haval Kurdistan, carry their rifles with an easy familiarity born from hard use. We march with them for a while, and eventually the column comes to a rest by the shade of a copse of small trees. As they rest, the different squad leaders, including Haval Kurdistan, move around and help their comrades with minor uniform issues, instructing them on how to readjust bits of gear or the best way to relax while carrying an AK-47. I'm struck by how profoundly different this feels from the stereotypical image of a boot camp. No one here is yelling at anyone. Instead, instructors and students make frequent gentle physical contact, touching each other on the arms and shoulders. They giggle, toss pieces of grass at one another during playful arguments. Yet, all the same, they learn the proper way to march with their guns and move, in gear, through the hell of a Syrian summer. The YPJ's reputation on the battlefield speaks to the fact that this style of training is effective. After a few minutes of rest, the unit packs up and moves out, continuing its march through the desert. I stand and watch them pass. I look at Haval Kurdistan, marching with her back straight despite the mass of scars that lurk beneath her uniform shirt. Like her, nearly all these young women spent years of their lives living under ISIS, forced to wear long black robes covering them from head to toe, even in scorching 110-degree days like these. They were helpless, the unarmed victims of a death-worshipping cult built on hateful masculinity. As they march past me, I split my gaze between their tromping column and the Turkish border wall, which looms as ever on the horizon. For all I know, there are bullets for every one of these young women waiting just a few miles away on the other side of that fortification. And yet, the tears that threaten at the corners of my vision are not tears of sorrow. Because there is one thing, and only one thing, that I know for certain. These women will never be slaves again.
The Women's War is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.